Hello and welcome back to the Kinesis News Podcast. I'm your host, Benedict Nicholson, and today I'm very excited to have with me the former minister and author, Dan Barker, who is now co-president of the Freedom From Religion Foundation. Thanks for coming on the show, Dan. It's a real pleasure, Ben. Um, so normally I start these things just by asking people about their background and and how they've come to be where they are to, to be interviewed on this on this magnificent show. So <laughs> why don't you yeah. tell us a bit about how you got to where, where you got to today? Well, I was born in a Christian family in California, and I was ordained to the ministry, and I went to Bible school, got a degree in religion. I was ordained to the ministry. I was a, an associate pastor mm-hmm. of three different churches. I was a Christian songwriter. In fact, I'm still getting royalties today from some of that music. <laughs> I was a missionary. I went to Mexico, for and I, for a total of two years I spent trying to convert Catholics into Christians. <laughs> and, uh, and and then I was a cross-country evangelist and a, a Christian record producer, and I really loved it. I thought the world was, was going to end any moment. Jesus was going to come back and send us all to heaven. And what was more important than spending your life trying to save people from the flames of hell and bring them into the loving arms of Jesus, mm-hmm. which is oversimplifying, of course, on a brief radio show like this. But... Um, uh, eventually, I started thinking for myself. I didn't have doubts. I just started having some good questions like, wow, what about this? And what about Adam and Eve? And what about evolution? And, mm-hmm. and I guess I, I, you know, to make a very long story short, it took four or five years of sort of slowly and painfully growing up, realizing, oops, what I used to believe just simply isn't true. And that was embarrassing. It was like, Okay, um, you know, like when you learn that there's no Father Christmas or there's no mm-hmm. Easter Bunny, you, you were a child once and then you realize, okay, well, I'm growing up now. So um, that was hard to do, and I, I sent out a letter announcing to everybody that I was no longer not only a preacher but no longer a believer. Mm-hmm. And that was in 1984. And very quickly, uh, I met the people at the Freedom From Religion Foundation, uh, we met on Oprah Winfrey's TV show back in 84, <laughs> which, was, which was really fun. <clears throat> and in 1987, then I married Annie Laurie Gaylor, the, one of the co-founders mm-hmm. of the Freedom From Religion Foundation. And we, I started working there. I guess I had to marry the boss's daughter you know, <laughs> <laughs> to get in. And, uh, and then this month, actually, right now, it was June of, of 87 that I started. So this is my 30th anniversary working oh, wow. at the, Congratulations. the Freedom <laughs> Freedom from Religion Foundation, and it's the, our 30th wedding anniversary, too. Oh, lovely. So, um, and uh, we started, when I started, there was about 1,000, maybe 1,500 members. Today, we're almost 30,000, uh, mostly in the United States, but all over the world. And we have a growing staff, an expanded building. We have 24 full-time staff, including eight full-time attorneys. Wow. Who there's so much work to do that they can't even get the work done. It's it's responding to complaints of religion and government mixing, and that can that's in the in the public schools. That can be nativity scenes on public property. We're even suing the federal government. We're suing President Donald Trump right now <laughs> for his executive order. I'm suing the chaplain of the House of Representatives. We're suing the governor of Texas uh, over um, violation of our free speech. And in fact, I'm in Texas right now. Okay. Uh, to, to do a debate here in Houston tonight, uh, and, and tomorrow I'll be talking to the Houston Oasis. That's a, a bunch of non-believers who gather on Sundays, and they want to hear about us suing the governor of the state. So mm-hmm. 
I got to tell you, it's a lot more fun than preaching. Yeah, <laughs> I can imagine. So you said it's uh, it is the main focus of the FFRF to kind of pick up on things and legally challenge them, or are there other things that you do? What, what's the kind of principal thing? So our bylaws have two purposes, mm -hmm. and they're both pretty much equal. We are known mostly for the first purpose, and that is to keep state and church separate. Mm -hmm. And so we do that through mostly through non-litigation, but then we go to court as well, and it's educational. And that's what our whole legal floor is about, keeping state and church separate. And in our country, we have this wonderful amendment to our Constitution called the First Amendment, which prohibits the government from doing anything that even resembles establishing a religion. So that's most of our work. But our second purpose is just as important, and that's to educate the public about the views of non-believers, non-theists. Mm -hmm. So most of our members would call themselves atheists or agnostics or secular humanists. or um, We don't care. We don't actually care what name. You know, We kind of have a joke around here that we don't care what we call ourselves. We all disbelieve in the same God, so it doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't matter. So and we have a few people. We actually have some uh, religious people join our group because, uh, you know, there's a, there's a lot of believers, moderate and liberal Christians and, and Jews and that, who support state church separation. So mm -hmm. they may not agree with our atheism and agnosticism, but they do really appreciate keeping religion and government separate. Okay. I mean, that's, that's very interesting. So you said you're, you're currently suing Donald Trump. Are you allowed to talk about that or, or have you got like a, have the court said that you can't talk about that or anything? Well, yeah, I can talk about it, but I have to send it in a tweet, you know? Okay. Just, just kidding. All right. All uh, right. Because that's, that's how he communicates. Yeah, no, I got you. I got you. Uh, but uh, um, yeah, so um, on May the Fifth, I think it was. It made the, the first Thursday in May last month. Um, Donald Trump. It was the National Day of Prayer, and in the uh, Rose Garden at the White House, he signed an executive order to do something that he promised he would do when he was campaigning. He promised that he would he would repeal the Johnson Amendment. The Johnson Amendment in the 1950s prohibits churches and nonprofits from doing political activity if you want to remain tax-exempt. So like Annie Laurie and I cannot go on our radio show and endorse candidates. We, we would become a political group. We have to be non-political. Okay. Uh, but the Johnson Amendment uh, prohibits pastors and priests from doing the same thing. They cannot get up in the pulpit and say, here's who you should vote for in the election or who you should vote against. Mm -hmm. Uh, the religious right in our country has complained incorrectly, but they're complaining that this is a violation of their free speech. They should be able to say whatever they want. Mm -hmm. And, of course, the Johnson Amendment, and we uh, you know, think that that's part of the bargain you strike. If you want to be a tax-exempt nonprofit group, like a charity or, or a, an educational or a science or an arts or whatever, then you do not use the money for political. So what Donald Trump did at the Rose Garden when he signed this executive order, uh, he realized that he cannot repeal the Johnson Amendment because presidents can't do that. It's only the legislature that can do that. Yeah. So he did an end run around that and he signed an executive order directing the IRS to ignore any preacher or priest who is politicking from the pulpit. In other words, that that they should be allowed to get away with breaking the law, is what mm -hmm. his executive order was. So 
uh, we immediately sued because uh, the executive order says churches can do it, but but we can't. We as a nonprofit uh-huh. still cannot. So we so it's an unequal treatment there. Yeah. And we were able to sue on the very day, within a couple of hours oh, wow. after he signed it. Our attorneys were ready, and we filed that lawsuit. Um, he's challenging. He he overstepped his authority. The president cannot cannot do something like that. And in any event, it's unfair. Mm-hmm. It, it would be like the president telling the highway patrol, if you see somebody speeding on the highway, uh, and if it's a church van, well, just let them go. Just ignore it, you know. So... Uh, so that's that's the basis of that lawsuit. Okay, interesting. And uh, I I've kind of heard rumors that churches do that anyway. Is, is there any truth to that? I mean, they, they've always done it, and the IRS have always kind of turned a blind eye a little bit. Well, we we took a lawsuit three or four years ago on that very issue because mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> the IRS has not been enforcing the law. And so we sued, and we said, this is not right. We have, we have these laws in place, and these churches are getting away with this. And in fact, some of the churches are very blatant. Some of the pastors want to be penalized so that they can have legal standing to, to challenge the whole law in the first place. They, they want to do that. So, um, uh, and there have been some churches that, um, you, know, you know, the government cannot shut down the church. But the government can say, well, you're no longer tax-exempt. Sure. Any donations to your church are now no longer tax-exempt. And, of course, the churches churches can say what they want. If, if they want that tax exemption, you know, which basically is a subsidy, because when they don't pay taxes, the rest of us have to pay more. Mm. Uh, if they want that tax exemption, they should avoid politicking. And to, to, to be a political group, it, you're, you're not a 501c3 nonprofit like we are and churches are. You would be a 501c4 so when you give money to a political candidate in this country, you cannot deduct that from your taxes. So churches could do that if they want, but of course they want the tax deduction. Yeah. So yeah, there are some churches that are doing it. And, uh, and by the way, the Johnson Amendment does not prohibit churches from talking about issues. And they, a pastor can get up and a priest can get up and say, you should vote for candidates who are pro-life. That's okay because uh, it's not name. They're not naming anybody. They're just talking about general issues. They've always been able to do that, right? Uh-huh. So it's only when you're they're doing direct political speech that they are prohibited, and that's the basis that, of that lawsuit. Okay, so the reason then that it's not a violation of their free speech is that they can actually do it, and it's just it, they they will stop getting their government subsidy basically if they if they do do it. Yeah, and it's, it's actually it's not a government subsidy because. The, the tax exemption does not apply to the church itself. It applies to the donations that contributors make to the church. Oh, I see. So, I see. so if you were to make a donation to this Baptist church on the corner, mm-hmm. when, it, when it's time to file your taxes, you can deduct that donation from your personal income tax. I see. Which means that, that individual contributors are more likely to give to a nonprofit because they know it's tax deductible. So... Uh, it, it does amount to a subsidy, but it's an indirect subsidy because the rest of us are having to pay the taxes to cover the taxes that are not being paid because these people are deducting it from their tax from their income. I see. So yeah, it seemed like a weird thing to me because you know President Trump has always been about oh look, creeping Sharia law. I mean, presumably this allows imams and things to to endorse political candidates as well, which which seems counterproductive. <laughs> Yeah, well, um, 
in our country, you probably know the recent history since the 80s, late 70s and 80s with the moral majority and the Christian coalition. Mm. Uh, they have had some power as a voting bloc, the religious right. Pastors and priests have been able to command the vote. You know what I mean? You should yeah. vote like this. And so I think Trump still thinks we're living in those ages, not realizing that our country is really changing. Mm. Hopefully we're catching up with England. You know, we, we're really envious of your lack yeah. of religion over there. <laughs> yeah. And. And, it's, and it looks like we are catching up, but Trump is still pandering to this base that he thinks is this powerful base. Mm. Um, and so he made these promises to the religious right, the evangelical right, and he's keeping his promise the best he can. This executive order really, in fact, there's a lot of Christians who don't think it went far enough. And they're criticizing that executive order that we're suing over uh, for not going far enough. So um, Yeah, I saw it as, I mean, a lot of them said, that a lot of reporters that have covered religion for a long time have said, I've literally never once heard people complain about this as their main issue yeah. that they want the government to intervene on. So he's just throwing some red meat to the religious right, and they love it. You know, and they, they think they are the ones who are being persecuted. They oh, yeah. think the secular government is shutting their mouths and that they, you know, we need to go back to total freedom. And we say, you can have total freedom, but then just don't be a tax-exempt group. They, they want to have it both ways. Yeah, sure. Um, my next question is a bit of a, a funny one. I was looking at your website, and there is just a lot of crazy things happening. And I guess my question is, how do you keep up with it all? Do you rely on people bringing in tips and stuff? Or have you got people like scouring the internet, looking for, for crazy things that are happening? What, what's the deal? Well, um, we have a talented staff, and especially Annie Laurie. She's just always on top of things, you would always watching. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, she's the driving force and one of the founders. And it's just like, um, it's pretty incredible. And it's not only the, the program that we do, but it's also just running the office. There's so many things just to run an organization. You know, you know how that's involved. Mm -hmm. But uh, we don't have to scour the country. Sometimes we are accused of roaming the nation looking for trouble uh -huh. well, that's the last thing we want to do and and that's the last thing we need to do because these issues pop up all over the country and the complainants in a local area contact us okay. so for for example some texas school out in the country the fifth grade teacher is making the students pray you know before uh -huh. class uh, and there's a, a non-believing or a non-christian family in that school and the, the community is primarily you know, conservative Christian, they have to keep their heads down. Mm -hmm. they, they, they don't want to be the family or the kids who complained about the Bible or the prayers, right? Yeah. So they contact us and they say, hey, they're doing this and my kid's uncomfortable and, and I don't think it's right that the school's interfering with our family's religious beliefs. And so then our attorneys can send a letter to that principal or to the school board or to the mayor or whoever, you know, whatever the problem is, on behalf of local people. So we have a, you know, we have a, a very good intake at our office where mm -hmm. complaints come in either by the phone or by email or through an intake form on our website. And, uh, and then the attorneys are all divided up under different issues in different, different parts of the country. And with most of these issues, we have done them so many times before that we already have the template letters ready to go. I see. So we, this summer we have... In, in addition to the eight attorneys that we have, we have this summer eight 
legal interns oh, wow. also. Who, uh, and the attorneys love to dump the work on the interns. You know how that goes. <laughs> and, it, and it's not that hard because the interns can get the intake and they say, oh, this is a prayer in a fifth grade classroom in Texas. Mm. There's already a letter pretty much written about that. And yeah. all they have to do is fill in the blanks, you know, dear yeah. principal so-and-so, or, or here's the legal precedent in your district, and here's what the court said. Really nice letters that are all ready to go. And we can sometimes get a response out that day. Oh, wow. So uh, especially it's especially important, like uh, some 12th grader will send an email saying, hey, I just found out they're saying a prayer at my graduation next Tuesday. Mm -hmm. So we can get a letter out right away saying that's illegal. That's violating the Constitution. You can't do that. So uh, we don't need to roam the country. There's, we can't even keep up with the work that's coming in right now. Okay. <laughs> I actually, hearing you talk about that and, and what happens in schools and things, brought to mind another question that I have as an ignorant Brit um, I am always a bit shocked at the Pledge of Allegiance and that that happens so often and and they have uh, God related texts in the Pledge of Allegiance right so why is that allowed yeah so <clears throat> the original Pledge of Allegiance only goes back to the late 19th century and it was written by a socialist named Francis Bellamy that's, that's and, a dirty uh, word over here, right? <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and uh, it was uh, originally did not have God in it. No, and yeah. it was just one nation indivisible. And in fact, I'll tell you, I'll give away my age because when I went to kindergarten to school for the first time, I learned the Pledge of Allegiance as it was originally written mm. one nation indivisible because we had had a civil war and there mm. were all these. Divisions in the country, but now the Civil War is over. We are one nation, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. That's the way I learned it, and that's mm -hmm. the way everybody learned it before 1956. Um, and then uh, an act of Congress, they decided to put under God into the pledge. So it, it changed to one nation under God, indivisible. And ever since that time, students have said it that way. Sure. But, but why is that allowed? I, I, I'm trying to get my head around why that's okay, but saying a prayer isn't okay? Is it because it's not a specific God? or? Well, um, <clears throat> it, it's allowed because it has not survived a legal court challenge yet. Okay. And so there's a lot of things that our government and our legislature has done that is actually unconstitutional and illegal that has to be challenged in the courts. There have been a number of attempts, but the, the, the courts have been very good at dodging these attempts. So uh, it was... It was during the 1950s when a lot of things happened in this country that were bad for state separation uh -huh. uh, as a result of the hatred of communism and godless communism and the McCarthy era and all of that. Yeah. So Billy Graham and members of Congress passed a bunch of laws. They made our national motto, In God We Trust, mm -hmm. during the 1950s. They put under God in the Pledge of Allegiance. They, um, uh, they instituted a... Um, National Day of Prayer, and they, they, a whole bunch of other things they did, which, which tried to make us look like we were a Christian country. Mm -hmm. So, um, Is it still on the money? It's still on the money, isn't it? In, in God yes, it's still on the money. That's... Isn't that interesting? Here we have a totally secular government with God is on our money. Yeah. And a lot of European countries have an official religious government, but there is no God on the money. Yeah, know? I mean, the, the UK has, uh, you know, the, the Queen is the head of... The church, I guess she's the head of the church yeah. and is on the money, but she's not on the money as a religious figure. Yeah, yeah. That's, so, yeah. so it's wrong. And there, and in fact, the law has. There have been some cases that no student has to say it. Anybody can object and not say it. 
But that puts a student in an awkward position. If you're in some school, mm. everybody stands and they put their hand on their heart and they say the Pledge of Allegiance, and there's this one kid who remains seated, yeah. which they, they can legally do that. Look what happens in the schools. There's bullying that happens. There's, yeah. there's you know divisions. And our schools are supposed to be welcoming to all and treating everybody the same. Especially so, if they don't look Christian, I would imagine. You know, if yeah. you know a Sikh that doesn't want to say it or whatever. I mean, it's yeah. someone of yeah. a different religion. It's, it's probably puts them in a very difficult position. Yeah, and so we have given awards to students who have been brave enough to not say it. You know Absolutely. what I mean? And, say, and in some cases, the students have been have suffered some persecution. They've even been called into the principal's office, and the kids on the playground tell them they're going to hell. You know, I mean, there's, that kind of thing happens. You mm. you know what happens, and so. Uh, we would love to find a good way to challenge um, under God in the Pledge of Allegiance because it wasn't in the original, mm -hmm. and there's nothing in our founding documents that even require a pledge to a piece of cloth. I mean, that's mm -hmm. so silly in the first place. We're all patriotic no matter what we say. And in fact, if you're pledging to freedom, that implies the freedom not to have the government tell you what to say. The freedom to dissent. Of, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, so people should be honoring those of us who exercise our freedom to dissent from this pledge of allegiance mm -hmm. yeah it, it yeah it, it it strikes me as a distinctly odd practice as an outsider to all stand up and be pledging to a flag but i i won't go there <laughs> anymore I except think. except you're right we share your um uh embarrassment at our country i mean it's just uh, um yeah. well i live here now so <laughs> that's fine. yeah I've uh, I've moved over the pond, so I'm I'm getting used to all the uh, all, all all the idiosyncrasies of American government. Uh, where do you live now? I'm in New York now. Oh, New York. Okay. Yeah. So it, godless New York. So I'm. I actually saw a Freedom from Religion Foundation uh, thing in Times Square the other day. Oh, really? Like, the one about the wall? The yeah. Wall yeah. 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 I was. I was like, oh, I'm interviewing <laughs> very soon. So that's good. Yeah, um, that was a. That's a huge billboard. I think it's like. Yeah. I it, don't know. It's 40, massive. 43. It's right in the center of Times Square. It's absolutely huge. It's 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 very imposing, actually. Yeah, yeah, I know. I, we never saw it in person, but we saw pictures of it. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I wish I'd snapped a, <laughs> snapped a picture so I could put it with this interview, but I, I didn't do it quickly enough. Um, okay, so moving on then. You said you're, you're debating tonight in Texas, right? I'm in Houston today. That's right. Yeah, okay. So I... My, my question is about going into the Bible Belt to... It, I assume Texas counts as part of the Bible Belt to debate religious people. What's the, I mean, is it ever effective or do you kind of preach to the people that are coming to see you because they know you will dissent and they want to support you because they're a minority in their own community? Well, yes, it is effective. Okay. Um, and there's, there's a huge debate among non-believers about whether we should even do debates. Mm hmm and I understand that because in some cases, maybe we shouldn't. I, I, I respect Richard Dawkins, for example, for refusing to debate creationists mm -hmm. because if he does that, he's like giving them equal billing. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, boy, we get to debate Dawkins on creationism, so he won't do it. Yeah. But on, on general issues, um, if the debate in, – in fact, tonight is going to be my 125th public debate oh, wow. since, since 1985. That sounds like a lot, but that's like four a year, you know? Yeah. Um, so if the debate's held at a university, for example, there is a big chunk of the audience that truly is in the middle. Okay. You know, they're, they're not like 
cheerleading for one side or the other. They're actually there. They're actually thinking, right? And so among that crowd, uh, you can make a difference. And in fact, whenever debates have been judged uh, before and after, mm-hmm. the few times that's happened, it's always the, the delta. The, the shift in opinion has been more in my direction than the other person's direction. Oh, okay. so, that's, so that's important. Another purpose of a debate is... Um, because you're not going to tr- change the mind of the opponent. I mean, they're they're the true believers, right? right. Uh, another purpose, though, is um, it's an event for non-believers to come to. And even though we're, this is the Bible Belt, there mm-hmm. are a whole bunch of non-believers and, and a bunch of members of ours who will be coming tonight. And so this is a great chance for them to come together. And tonight's different. Tonight's going to be actually in a church in downtown oh, wow. Houston. And the pastor, um, we went out to dinner last night, and he's really a sweet, nice guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's bringing in this uh, military chaplain to be my opponent, Sonny Hernandez. And so um, there are a few Christians who are really open to dialogue, and he's he's brave enough to have an atheist come into his pulpit and mm-hmm. do my side of the debate. So you have to give him some credit for that. Uh, <clears throat> but um, another thing is that our, our members like to see us engaging with the other side, trying to educate. And long after the debate is over, these debates go online, and and I forgot about them. You know, there's <laughs> dozens of debates that I don't even remember, and then I see, oh, somebody recorded it, and now it's online, and so it continues to have mm-hmm. an effect. And I, I hear from a lot of people who say, I watched three or four of your debates, and yeah, I learned a lot. And so, you know, there's that aspect of it as well. And I do hear from people who say that they did actually change their mind. Maybe not sitting in the chair that evening. But it was a part of the process. It sparks a thought, maybe, and, and then yeah, they, they and, start thinking. And, yeah. and one of our attorneys, Patrick Elliott, uh, was a believing Catholic. He went to one of my debates at the University of Wisconsin 10 years ago or so as a believing Catholic. And he it got him thinking. And now he's, now we've hired him as one <laughs> of our attorneys. So, I mean, so it does happen. People do change their minds. Okay. What's your favorite debate that you've done? Or, yeah, the one you most enjoyed or thought was most effective? Well, actually, um, the one in Oxford, England. At, oh, uh, that's for... my my alma mater. Oh, really? Okay. So you know the uh, the it's called the Oxford Society. The students have this. Uh, um, the union, you know, the Oxford Union. The union, yeah, yeah, the Oxford Union, yeah, and they hold it in that famous room. Uh, yeah. Um, I forget the name of the room, but anyway. It's the union debating chamber. It's... Yeah, yeah, it's a pretty amazing. It's like you're in Parliament or something. Yeah, it, uh, you know, so many so many famous people have walked through those. Those yeah. halls. Bernie Sanders so, was there yesterday. My so it was great. And, of course, the, the members of the union were wearing their black tuxedos with the white ties. And we did a yeah. toast to the queen, all of that very <laughs> British thing, you know. <laughs> no uh, pledge allegiance to the flag, but we will toast no, no. the queen. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so it was me. It was um, um, uh, Michael Shermer and, uh, and an Oxford professor, uh, Peter Milken. Mm-hmm. Um and we went up against uh, John Lennox, the mathematician, uh, Peter Hitchens, who's the brother, oh, wow. the, believing, the believing brother of Christopher Hitchens, mm-hmm. uh, who, who really was pretty much worthless. He was pretty much just an ad hominem attack. Okay. And then there was a, an Anglican uh, priest, uh, Joanna Caldicott. So it was three against three, and it was very formal. Uh, proposition, this house uh, believes there... Um, there's a God, right? Okay. And at the end of the debate, um, and in fact, Richard Dawkins was sitting there right behind us. So it's, it was like, oh, we better do a good job. Yeah, <laughs> we're going to uh, show up today because he so, could stand up at any minute. 
And so at the end of the debate, the uh, Oxford, uh, the, the student who's in charge of the Oxford Union said, oh, we're going to vote with our feet. Mm -hmm. Those of you who support the proposition will exit through this door. And those of you who support the opposition, which is us, will exit through this door. Mm -hmm. And the proposition had about 142 people went through it. They counted them. The opposition had about 168 oh, who wow. went through it. So by a, by a vote of the feet of the Oxford Union, there is no God. <laughs> <laughs> and what better way to decide, <laughs> really? Yeah. Um, so when you go down to the, uh, to the Bible Belt areas, do you get asked odd questions from the, from the gallery, from the, the, the audience, or does it tend to be less audience participation? Well, at, at events like a public debate, mm -hmm. most of the people are pretty plugged into the issue. So you do get informed questions. Okay. Uh, because why would you spend an evening going to an event like this unless you cared in some deep way? And so on both sides of the issue, they're usually informed and almost always cordial. Once in a while, somebody gets up and starts screaming, you're a blasphemer. You know, once in a while that happens, um, but that's rare. Yeah. And when that happens, I say, you think I'm a blasphemer? Wow, thank you for the compliment. <laughs> this is... <laughs> I've been trying very hard for 30 years yeah. now. <laughs> Wow, that's really great, because I think blasphemy is a positive moral impulse. Mm -hmm. You blaspheme when you're criticizing the powers above, right? Yeah. And most, most law, I think, arises from a rebellious challenge of the authority that where this inequality is coming from. So to be called a blasphemer is to be called a good thing. But I remember after one debate, um, you know, it's a long debate, more than two hours, and your voice gets tired, and some guy came up and he said, so I have a question, Mr. Barker, um, and I thought I had heard everything, right? Mm -hmm. But he said, so are you a practicing homosexual? <laughs> <laughs> I like the practicing qualifier in that. <laughs> well, yeah. So, and I think he must have been thinking that the only reason somebody would not believe in God is so that they would not have any moral restraints and they could live their lives any way they pleased. Mm -hmm. and, and, and for some reason, homosexuality is a big deal in his mind. So I must be a homosexual and I don't believe in God because I don't want God to tell me that I can't be a homosexual. You know, uh, that's probably what he was thinking. But mm -hmm. I, I basically just sort of mumbled, um, no, I'm not a homosexual. But if I were, I wouldn't be ashamed of it. I mean, we are who yeah. we are. Besides, and I would change my thinking. And it's irrelevant to the debate anyway, yeah. you know, so. Exactly. All right. That's strange. <laughs> that that huh. is a strange question. Um, <clears throat> let's think. How about, as, as we wind down the interview, I think we've not got too long left. Um, but what are three books that you think people should read? I probably should have let you prepare for this question. Three books. Well, I think, <clears throat> and you might find this odd, mm -hmm. I think people should read the Bible. Uh huh. No, I don't find that odd at all. I've I've read the Bible. I've been a non-believer for years, and I've read. <laughs> I mean, they say, don't they, that it's one of the biggest causes of deconversion from Christianity is to actually read the Bible. Exactly, and that's part of my argument tonight. I'm gonna I'm gonna challenge in a church full of people. I'm gonna challenge them. Have you actually read the Bible? Mm -hmm. And you know, a, a lot of people say reading the Bible turned them into atheists. So. It seems odd. Here are in Richard Dawkins, you know, his famous line about the God of the Old Testament is the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Uh, <laughs> yeah. 
we are begging people. In fact, we co-wrote a book together uh, called God, the Most Unpleasant Character in All Fiction. Oh, okay. we, we atheists are begging people to please read the Bible. And how can we be faulted for that? Please open it and read it. And I think it's like, um, um, you know, when you install a new app on your phone or when you, you know, when you sign up for something online and there's these terms and conditions that you have to read. Yeah. Do you do you, do you ever read them, or do you just scroll down to the bottom? And no, you say, I've accept. sold my soul to Apple many times. <laughs> so you just hit accept, and I think most Christians are like that with the Bible. Mm-hmm. They actually have not read it. They just kind of scroll down and hit accept, and they they know three or four verses about God is love and love your neighbor. You know, they think that's what Christianity is. When if they would actually read the Bible, yeah. they would toss it in the trash bin in disgust. Mm-hmm. It is not a book on which we should base knowledge or morality mm-hmm. then of course Bertrand Russell's why I'm not a Christian mm-hmm. uh, you know that that used to be the only thing that was available yeah back in the you know back in the 40s 50s and 60s and early 70s you know yeah if you went into a bookstore somewhere that's kind of basically all you would find and it, there wouldn't even be an atheism section you would have to find it somewhere in the philosophy yeah today you can go into most bookstores and there's an actual atheism section and you'll find Dawkins and Harris and Hitchens, and you'll, you'll find some of my books and other in Michael Shermer's and others, <clears throat> which is kind of interesting. And sometimes I was at Powell Bookstore a month ago in Portland, two whole shelves of atheism, which wow. was pretty rich. You that know? Is, <laughs> that's pretty good. Uh, yeah. And uh, one more? Oh, one more book? Oh, yeah. yeah Why I'm Not a Christian? Um, well, I love Robert Ingersoll. Okay. Uh, Robert Ingersoll was a 19th century. Um, uh, agnostic orator. He didn't call himself an atheist, but his writings are just melodic. And back in the days when the orators had this different way of speaking, people would come and listen to him talk for two, three hours outdoors without amplification. And Robert G. Ingersoll wrote, uh, you know, a, a lot of books, uh, Some Mistakes of Moses, and uh, his writings about love and about, and about morality and all of that. Uh, I, I still get moved in a non-spiritual way, if you know what I mean. I still get moved yeah. by reading Robert G. Ingersoll. So uh, he needs to be reintroduced to the world, I think. Okay, yeah, it's someone I'd never heard of, so that that's great. I'll try and check him out. Um, all right, let's begin to wrap up there. Is there anything that you'd like to tell people about that you're going to be doing soon or any books that you've written <clears throat> that you think people should read, any where they can follow your either you or your foundation? Go ahead. Well, it's easy to find us online, um, ffrf.org. Okay. And uh, you can also look on there for the events where we're speaking. Tonight's event, uh, tomorrow's event, I'll be speaking at the Houston Oasis, which is a bunch of non-believers who get together on Sundays for non-church. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? It's pretty, it's pretty amazing. It's similar to uh, what Sunday Assembly is doing. Um, okay. And then uh, we'll be in London. Um, Annie Lauren and I will be there next month for uh, a huge conference on free expression organized by Miriam Namazi. Yeah, I think, with... I think Benjamin <clears throat> David, who's our uh, uh, <laughs> editor-in-chief, is going to be speaking yeah. there as well. So. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we're going to see each other finally in person. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and people from, I think, they, I think more than 25 countries, people who, and some of them wow. have been persecuted and harassed for their beliefs and all that so uh, that'll be um so um, do you know the date of that well um july sometime right (laughs) july i think like the 20th 21st it's that big weekend in july okay uh and uh it's going to be pretty exciting 
<clears throat> and then um, my next book is going to be about free will, but it's not out yet. Um, okay. <clears throat> it's, <clears throat> it's called Make Up Your Mind. Do you have free will or don't you? Interesting. And that's <laughs> Sterling Publication. And, and that's sort of a minefield. Mm-hmm. Um, and it touches on religion, obviously, because even religious people disagree about free will. Mm-hmm. But non-believers also disagree. And free will is one of these very fierce but friendly fights that atheists and agnostics have with each other. There's yeah. the, you know, the Sam Harris's and them who say, no, free will is a total illusion and we don't have it at all. And then on the other side, philosophers like Daniel C. Dennett and mm-hmm. uh, others who say, of course we do have free will. So that's a good fight. <clears throat> and I'm going to stick my toe in those waters. And Interesting. I asked Richard Dawkins if um, he might consider writing a blurb, you know. Uh-huh. And he said, he said, I'm going to pass on this one, Dan. Uh, <laughs> I, but you're... But you're very bold to go into those. To dip your toe. And what, what's your what's your one sentence position on it? Well, um, yeah, this is oversimplifying it, but of course. <laughs> free will. <clears throat> excuse me. Free will is not a scientific truth. Mm-hmm. Free will is a social truth. So I think both sides are right, and I don't think there's even a fight. And I think <laughs> that's hardly bravely dipping your toe, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't. I, I think I think both sides are right, and I don't think there's any sides. Okay. And so I'm gonna I'm gonna argue that it's not it's not like a game of tug of war between those who say we have free will and those who say we don't. Mm-hmm. It's like a category difference, and so um, and I've got some really nice positive support from some people, and then some people who hate it already. Already. So, which is which is good actually. That help. It makes a book stronger when yeah. you can get the strongest critic, like Jerry Coyne, for example. He and I are really good friends. He's mm-hmm. the biologist. You know, he wrote um, uh, Faith versus Fact and Why Evolution is True. Yeah. But he disagrees with it, and uh, so I incorporate his disagreements in the book. And that's one nice thing about us atheists and agnostics is that we welcome disagreement mm-hmm. whereas most religious people are uncomfortable that you all have to think the same in fact the bible even says that you should all be of one mind no divisions among you and we non-believers we say well let's you know let's listen to each other and let's have a disagreement and let's learn and let's you know let's and let's admit we're wrong sometimes you it's know? funny so, how many types of christianity they are there are given that that passage isn't it yeah yeah, that they should, there should be no divisions among you. <clears throat> well, I like to say that the Paul in the Bible wrote that God is not the author of confusion. But can you think of a single book that's caused more confusion than yeah. the Bible? I mean, really. <laughs> you, could, you could say you're right. Man who wrote about God is the author of confusion. Yeah. God is certainly that, not yeah. the author. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> I'll stop droning on now. We'll wrap up there. Um, so that's the end of our show. Thank you very much, Dan Barker, for being with us. Thank you. It was a real pleasure, Ben. Uh, as always, you can check out canatusnews.com where you will find all our podcasts, all our writing. Thanks very much for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.